Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by our panel. Say hello, panel. Hey. Hi, hey. panel. Today we're going to be discussing episode three of the show, A Place of Safety. Uh, but before we get to that, let's uh, meet who we have from our panel today. Uh, Samaria, how's it going? I am so good, guys. And DW. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back. Greg. In it, on it, doing it. Siobhan. All good. Axel. Hello, everybody. And David. Dabo. That's right. We've got a full crew in the house uh, tonight for episode three. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. But uh, Axel and Samaria, you were both missing for episodes one and two. So I'm going to uh, go to each of you individually for a moment just to, to find out what you think about those. So Axel, what, what are you thinking on episodes one and two so far? All right. So I'm digging it. Um, my first reactions were it's good, seems kind of tropey, predictable, but this is a good way to set a scene, get things going, allow an audience to understand what's going on and get the thing rolling. And as the second episode came along, it's like, yep, okay, that's moving. It's now starting to reveal itself in the third episode, as we'll discuss more, does that even more so. It's it's good. Uh, do you have you picking any favorite characters as of yet? Uh, not yet, no. Not yet. Okay, you're still still playing the field. Yeah. Okay. And Samaria, what what did you think of those first two episodes? Um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Like, I really, I really enjoy how the story kind of just drops us into it with, you know very little explanation about things like it'll give us bits and pieces here and there but just encourages the viewer to stick with it and let the story unfold how it's unfolding and you know i i just really enjoy you know how different groups and individuals are already playing off each other i'm enjoying the color like all the scenery costumes and the lighting like i can actually see it I really like that. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do have a favorite so far. It, it can change. It's a Gwen so far, which is kind of predictable. It might be. Okay. Um, but I also really like Perry. He's very soft and sweet. But, you know, I really like what? that they are allowing this big, strong male character to be quiet. I, like, I don't see that a lot in fiction. So I've been enjoying that so far. Um yeah. I just, I like how something shocks me every now and then. Like, it seems like I know where the story is going and then it'll, like, it'll just surprise me and then it'll keep going. So I don't even get to, like, soak in it before we're like, okay, we'll come back <laughs> around to that. Well, I'm glad to hear that both of you are enjoying it so far. Uh, let's uh, just dive right into episode three here because we've got a lot to cover. Uh, so episode three, it's called A Place of Safety. Uh, it was directed by Wayne Yip and written by the Clarkson twins. And our recap uh, just started out right away with uh, Back in the Two Rivers, the Battle of the Two Rivers. Uh, Nynaeve is being dragged away by the Trolloc. And the Trolloc stops to go check out another Trolloc that looks hurt. It looks like this Trolloc might be going over to help out the other Trolloc for a second. For a second. For a second. And, yeah, uh, I, had, I had that brief moment, like, "Oh, look, the Trollocs have compassion too." Nope, no, no. no. <laughs> cannibalize each other. 
So while the Trolloc is uh, having a snack of the other Trolloc, Nynaeve uses that that uh, time to escape, and she runs uh, to the cave that we saw earlier where the women's circle uh, had their, their whole ceremony. And uh, she runs in and hides in the water, gets chased in by the Trolloc, and uh, the Trolloc starts looking for her, and he knows she's in there and starts stabbing around in the water, gets in the water with her. And uh, this is the scene that I really loved there, her braid just rising up out of the water there. Yeah. Like, that that just reminded me of, like, the Predator or maybe uh, uh, Jaws' fin coming out of the water, and I just, I love that so much. Martin she Sheen came up Apocalypse on... Now. Yes, exactly. Coming out of the mud. I started humming the Jaws theme music. <laughs> like, you are one fucked Trolloc. <laughs> I also liked that that scene was telling us that the Trollocs have at least this level of intelligence. They're going in the cave. He, he knows that he followed her into the cave. He can't detect her, but in the pool is the obvious place to search. Yeah. Right? As opposed to just dumb monster go in, doesn't see her, run, leaves. It almost seemed like to me for a second that she could make herself invisible to the Trolloc. Like, obviously, she must have moved into the pool and gone deeper, but it looked there for a second like she had collapsed on that side of the rock, and then we cut back to it, and she's completely invisible at that point. That was the impression I got to. Like, it, was, it wasn't just a she was hiding. It was, like, magical, not visible. Interesting. I had assumed she has escaped. Like there was a cave system that we didn't know about, and she had just figured she knew as a right, like as a care, like the caretaker of this pool that she knew that she could swim away. So I, I was surprised that she reappeared. Yeah, or a deeper part of the of that little pool because we know how the Trollocs are in deep water, very stone like, but. I did notice he got in the water. Like it, it didn't melt it removed him. Any, he he didn't, it he didn't dissolve. Yeah. It wasn't acid. He poked but, it first uh, to see how deep it was. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, if we I remember, don't think he was poking it for depth. I think he was trying to stab her. Well, yeah. If we remember in, in episode two, the Trollocs chasing them did run through the shallow water of the, the shallower river bottom that they were running through. So obviously true, Trollocs true. are not just afraid of water on its own. They're afraid of water that they can drown in. Yeah. They've gotcha. got a little depth perception, so to speak. <laughs> Which is a, you know, an entirely reasonable thing to be afraid of. Yeah, It, it is entirely. However, um, David, it was you, I think, or it was either David or Greg that pointed out that the blade was possibly a Trolloc blade. Good eye. Yeah. Yep. Good I mean, eye. That was yeah, and, and, that. and that was the blade that uh, she's stole out of the Trolloc's belt and uh, killed the Trolloc with. And we fade out of that scene, seeing a, a really neat symbol being formed in that pool. Uh, did oh, anybody else yeah. catch that? Yeah, uh, it was very yeah, interesting. That was great. And clearly, the blood has meaning in this uh, world. They're doing some things with blood and transitions. There was one later that was just spectacular. Yeah, yeah, we'll the, the, the blood into the mountains yeah, thing. Yeah, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I I still loved the fact that we we got to see how she got away taking advantage of the moment, but it also tells us that they were taking her for a reason, which again leads to that whole she's one of the five, because everybody else they just killed. They had no reason to take that person with them, and this one they took and weren't immediately trying to feast on, so there's something there. They were sent for this one. 
Well, I mean, they may have just decided that they were already full and they wanted to save a snack for later on the road. And then no. decided really? to eat their friend? No. Well, their no, friend their friend was it. dying anyway. <laughs> you know, that's just going to be wasted if you don't eat it. That's like, you know, something <laughs> in the fridge that's going bad. You might as well just eat it now. Something tells me Trollocs don't worry about something going bad in the fridge. <laughs> but I think the dark they ones... prefer it going bad in the fridge. The dark one's just short on Trolloc food. So no, I mean, I can, I can completely see them eat it while it's still fresh and warm, and you're putting your friend out of their misery because you don't have any medical ability. So this guy is going to die. You know the guy is going to die, so he might as well do something useful before he dies, namely, be delicious. Exactly. <laughs> Here we go, the Trollic Humanization Podcast. <laughs> So moving on, we get to the uh, title credits, uh, and it feels like uh, some of you noticed some new things in the title credits that you may not have noticed last time. You want to talk about uh, that? Yeah, it looked like we've got some different color coding on some of the Aes Sedai that are depicted in the opening credits. You've got your yellow, you got your white, you got your blue, red, green, and like a light blue, and uh a black, I believe. I can't quite tell, or a navy, something like that. There's meaning there. There's meaning there. We, uh, you know, we we discussed on the last one how we had the yellow Aes Sedai that was uh, being, uh, <laughs> shall we say, uh, yeah, barbecued. Barbecued. That's, that's yes, a good yeah, term yeah. for it. Uh, and we've got the uh, the the red ones who were who were hunting, and more on that later. But uh, yeah, they were just, uh, it, it really stood out this time when, you know, looking for it. I mentioned the pops of color last time, how it was, there, there really is this, this pop of color to it, but I didn't realize that, oh, there's oh, some the, significance the, the pop there. of color might be important in some yes. way. Yeah. Well, I, I was catching the fact that we're not seeing people that we've already seen in the series. So it makes me wonder if these are people of the time of legend or are they people we're going to meet? Because they're just sort of icons. Exactly. Are they? Are they like the people? You know, to to make a Harry Potter connection, are they the people who began each of those color houses? You know, is that the first one who wore blue, the first one who wore red, the first one who wore white, or are these people we're going to meet in this as we watch the series, and their the reason for them being so significant in the opening will become revealed to us? I don't know. I've been assuming, like I love the I love the opening sequence, the title cards, it's beautiful. Um, that if it's the third, then one and two in that sequence, wherever you start counting from, are people of legend, and the ones following, they're either people that are coming, so they're not born yet because their times don't exist yet, or they're no longer remembered because they're so far back that people forget and so they're just kind of stand-ins yeah good take because it, it, they are there are different faces when you show the individual ones among the loom that's different than the one where you pan out and you see them in the uh in the circular pattern so yeah that's a good catch there probably are different people that are being depicted and that would make sense well and the detail on them seems so specific that like they i feel they're based off of whatever actor they were thinking so it's one of those like are we going to see the person be like oh look it's the person from the loom or is it going to be when they're telling a story we'll see that loom somewhere that'll tell us it's that person 
I'm, I'm loving all of these ideas that you're coming up with. And, and I was just looking at it like, wow, there's a pretty loom animation going on. <laughs> no, I, I think we've grown to think, you know, nothing's just a loom. <laughs> it's all a flat circle. <laughs> it's all a flat circle. Uh, so moving on, uh, our, our first scene is uh, we're returning to the end of, of the last episode where Nynaeve has the sword to Lan's throat. And she just immediately says, where are my friends? Uh, Lan just says, uh, sorry, they're not here. I, I don't know what to, help, what to tell you, but uh, you're a healer and Moraine needs healing. So you want to help out? And she very much does not want to help out. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts about this scene? It was a big stretch for uh, Lamb to think that she was going to help out in this situation, but I guess he's probably pretty desperate at this point. Right. I'm... He was desperate enough to take her to the city where death just looms everywhere. So I think Lamb yeah. is just hyper aware. Maybe in ways Maureen isn't because she doesn't have to be. Um, that in some cases, you know, you have to use each other and it you know, it works out. And so I, I think he knows, at least he figures out very quickly that Nynaeve is not about that life. And she is really, she's ready to slit a throat if she has to. But I think he figures out, well, Nynaeve is not going to hurt Moraine and or Lan himself until she gets what she wants. And the easiest way to, for Nynaeve to get what she wants is to help Moraine and Lan. And so he figures it out and maybe might in the future prolong like how much help he and Maureen needs to keep Nynaeve around. Um, but I mean, we shall see. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Well, I don't know. He kind of what? tested him on, tested her on that though. Like he let her decide whether she was going to be aggressive or not before he started trusting her with anything. I think She's become aware very quickly that she needs Moraine to find her friends, but she doesn't need Lan. Right. But I also know that that she or that Lan was not there for the conversation between Moraine and Nynaeve. So he doesn't necessarily know how negative she feels towards them. I I, I don't know that he's like she probably shared some of it with him, but I don't know that he's as uh as keyed in on how much she like just wants nothing to do with them plus if she like she mentions later understands that relationship with the warder she knows that he has to be there to protect her mm -hmm. yeah and i did wonder how much of that was literal like can you know land literally feel the pain maureen is in or if it's like that bond has been so cemented emotionally and mentally that you know it the pain is you know, transcends like body, you know, he has that much of a bond with her that, you know, psychologically he's, you know, he's in tune with her. Um, but she does respect that relationship or maybe not respect, but she understands that it's not, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. You know, you don't just break it and expect to expect to get off, you know, scot-free or easily if, you know, you affect that. So and so uh, Lan at this point just dares her and pretty much says, I don't believe that you'll try to kill me. You're, that's not the kind of person you are. To which she instantly goes for his throat. Immediately yeah. tries to kill him. Yeah. Um, and he catches her and knocks her out. But did you notice that look on his face before he knocked her out? 
that that uh, oh my god you actually tried to kill me <laughs> well, he even says that he yeah. makes the comment of like i i really didn't think you'd know i i threw it out there and i really didn't think you were going to be dumb enough to take it i think land is probably not the kind of person who gets surprised very often and she's managed to do it twice yeah yeah, yeah i was going to mention that he probably Found. isn't wrong very often so so how do you think lan is responding to to being surprised twice at this point there's definitely more to naive than re- meets the eye. Yes. So our next scene, we see uh, Rand and Matt. They're walking away from uh, from Shatter Logoth the next day. Uh, they're trying to decide if they're going to go on or if they're going to go back. And uh, they decide that they're going to go on because that's what Egwene would do. And they want to get back together with their friends. Yeah, yeah. we get Luke flip-flopping. I mean, Rand flip-flopping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What a beautiful shot of the city. It was so fast, but I wanted to pause that and look at it longer. The city in the background from the mountaintop. Yeah, that is that was quite the shot. So, so the thing that I don't understand, when they left the city at the end of the last episode, they were all mm-hmm. in water. Right. Why would you not stay by the water to look for each other? And why would you climb a mountain like everybody else picked the flat path? Yeah, they decided to start walking uphill. And Matt even mentions, you know, why are we walking uphill? But perhaps <laughs> that perhaps there's a Sisyphean uh, uh, metaphor here somewhere. Well, Rand is used to that, I suppose, because his whole sheep herding situation is going up into the mountains. And maybe that's where he feels comfortable. So that's no. why they went that direction. But... Man, I wouldn't do that, especially if I was in a chase and then had to jump off a wall and climb out of water. Well, he's an archer, though. High ground. That's true. Yeah, high That's ground true. for the yep. archer. That's true also. It just, it just seems like not illogical if you're looking for your friends to go herring off into a bunch of different directions. You stay yeah. close well, to where you lost I, I would think if you're looking for your friends, going for the high ground where you can see a lot further might be a good plan. Maybe that was Rand's yeah. plan. They did mention that, That's too. Valid. But I mean, yeah, That's like valid. there's a city, it's walled in, you go around the walls, eventually you'll have gone everywhere they could. Like, going around in a circle would seem like the most sensible way to find each other again. Although I don't know yeah. how much they wanted to be anywhere near that city anymore. They may have wanted to get all of them the heck away from a city that was like turning a horse to ash. Yeah, yeah, once you see your horse go yeah. completely ash, I think you you just want to not be there. Yeah. They Thanos Seabiscuit. I'm gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so our next scene, we we see uh, Perrin and Egwin. Uh, they are uh, running from from wolves. Uh, we we can still hear wolves behind them, and they stop to start a fire to hopefully keep the wolves at bay. Perrin's having a hard time getting the fire started, and uh, Egwene uh, sits and and kind of starts concentrating, and and eventually the fire gets lit, and they kind of look at you, look at each other, and Perrin says, "Was that you, or was that me?" What are we thinking at this point? Um, well, I assumed it was Egwene, actually, who did it, and she just didn't want to admit it um, to Perrin just just yet. Um, but, you know, we know Egwene was going to say yes to Nynaeve, and we know that, you know, she's taken at least some to Moraine as a mentor, a prospective mentor, maybe. Um, and I think she was like, well, Maybe I can try. You know, it's a very low risk, low, low level first taste of the power um, that, you know, we know she has now. So, I mean, 
I don't, and maybe, you know, Perrin was trying so hard and she saw that and, you know, he's panicking and she's like, let me just give him a little bump, see what happens and get fire. Plausible deniability. Having a uh, fair amount of experience with starting a fire that way, there was no way he was getting that thing started like that. You got to be much closer. You got to have better kindling than that. Sorry, it had to have been a Gwen in that case. Yeah, but honestly, that, I mean, yeah, Hollywood is Hollywood, but still, I, I see that to me as like that's bad TV direction is not a just a not a rationale for uh, magic worked. Like <laughs> BW, you have something to say? Oh, I was just wondering because like we talked earlier about, or we talked in the previous episode about um, the whether the wolf licked to help heal. Or if it was, you know, a, a scout learning whether or not, you know, alerting the Dark One as to the presence of them. And I will put forward, you began this segment with, they ran. He's moving better. That's true. That's His true. Leg, they don't yeah. show the wound. Leg. We haven't seen them, but he is definitely moving better than he was before with how black and festered that was beginning to look. So I think we've got an idea that those are parents' wolves. Well, and it puts forth that uh, they lead them in the correct direction also later in the episode. So definitely running um, that direction. If they're his wolves, he doesn't seem to be aware of it yet, though. No, no, no I agree. I don't think he has yeah. any clue. Yeah, for sure. This episode brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four in cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even those beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of your favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings and Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four in Cats with a K, Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. So... Another thing in this scene that I wanted to point out was uh, they have the same discussion that Rand and Matt had about, should we go on? Should we go home? Where should we go? How should we find them? And Egwene immediately says, we should go home because that's where Rand wants to go. But Perrin responds to her and says, no, you want to go to Tarvalon, so that's where Rand is going to go because he's going to go where you go. So I I, I love this because it's already kind of showing to me that Perrin... He he thinks things through. Yeah, mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't just jump to a, a conclusion. He may be quiet, but he is deep. Yes, yes, still waters run deep, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it shows how how well everybody really knows each other. Exactly there, how how, real... how close these friendships really are. Yeah, yeah. There's a real connection. They all really know each other, despite their their differences and their shortcomings. They know each other. That's for sure. Yeah, I was having this discussion earlier today about how when you grow up with people and you're super close, that can actually be a barrier to truly getting to know people because you you get used to them. You just assume things about them based on familiarity. But these are four people who have genuinely like paid attention to each other and actually communicated and, you know, made an effort to get to know each other and not relied on proximity and, you know, a 20 something years of being around each other, you know, as a basis of friendship. So, yeah. Yeah. There's some deep, deep uh, connections there. And, and the, the way they care about each other, the, there's um, the argument that Rand and Matt have 
where Matt is the one who wants to go home. And Rand says to him, it's not home if they're not there. Yeah. That is probably the one argument that would actually sway him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and Matt actually listens at that point. Yeah. Um, and then uh, moving on on our, our story, because we're, we're getting, uh, we're already half an hour into this and barely even scratching the surface <laughs> of this story. Uh, we've got, uh, we're going back to, to Lan and Nynaeve, and Lan has finally convinced Nynaeve to uh, help out Moraine that it's in her best interests. And uh, so Nynaeve is out collecting herbs that she's going to need to help to heal Moraine. And uh, she, she notices Lan just kind of looming, and she just says, I know you want to ask me, so go ahead and ask me. And Lan asks her, how did you track me? I'm, I'm a warder. How could you possibly track me? And she doesn't answer because he could ask a question. Didn't mean she's going to answer. Yep. I feel like their entire interaction this episode is them asking each other questions and not getting the answers. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like a, a, a stubborn mule talking to a stone, maybe. Yeah. But the interesting thing that I found is we talked in the last episode about how um, maybe, maybe she was following the Trollocs or something like that. And the, the fact that she is specifically tracking Lan. Yeah. Because she didn't, it, my first thought was, oh, well, she was maybe like tracking Egwene or something like that. And no, because then that would have led her to Egwene. Yeah. She has been tracking Moraine and Lan. And well, I kind of feel like his knowledge means that like his, his experience, he knows that it's him that she's somehow tracking and how he doesn't understand, which yeah. is kind of cool. Is it him or is it Moraine using the magic? Because I still think that she can channel a lot more than we're shown. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if she feels the she's following Moraine as Moraine channels the magic. Or if she's talking to the wind and then the wind is talking to uh, Nynaeve and Nynaeve doesn't even know she's getting the information from Moraine. Could be. Or she was tracing, you know, tracking all of them. But when Moraine and Lan left, they left the same way they came into the city. So she just ran into them first. Well, that's a good thought as well. So she could have been tracking, tracking uh, any, uh, or any or all, Egwene or, or any of them. So uh, she then gets all the herbs that she needs together, and uh, she goes to, to work on Warring, and she turns to Lan and says, I know about the water bond. I know that you feel what she feels. You're probably going to want to hold on to something because this is going to hurt, and then, you know, starts poking at Warring's wound. And uh, you brought this up earlier, Samaria, wondering, you know, what, what is that? Is that... A close connection is that you know you, a mother doesn't want to see its child get hurt, so they the mother feels hurt, or is it their actual hurt happening there? Um, well, similar to how the the three oaths are actually bonded to them magically, uh, the warder bond is the same way. It is it is actually a a magic bond between the two of them, and they do actually they can feel each other's pains. Um, this, you know, it, it, it helps the warder to know if his Aes Sedai is hurt and that, that allows him to better care for the Aes Sedai. Um, they're, they can kind of uh, take strength from each other through the bond. Um, it, it also gives some, some boons to the warder. It lets them go longer without sleep, lets them kind of burn the candle at both ends without too much ill effect, more or less. Um, 
and that's kind of what the the water bond provides. So so when she said you're you're going to feel this because I I know that how this bond works, he really is going to feel that. And and if you look at his face, you can see that he does feel that. He shows it the way Lan does, which is very much not at all. But you can tell it's there. <laughs> yeah, very stoic. Very stoic. The thing I picked up on in that scene that I really enjoyed was uh, twofold on it. The the fact that the healing that she did was non-magical. Yes. It was herbs and stuff like that. So that meant yeah. more to this concept that the wisdom is more than just another access to magic. The mm-hmm. wisdom is somebody who knows the forest and knows what herbs and knows what, like there's, it's really made me more interested in what the wisdom fully is. And then the other aspect of it that I really liked is she was treating the wound as you would need to, trying to get the poison out, trying to, which, you know, in the same way that a coder, when watching somebody do a movie about coding, gets really pissy about them not doing the coding right. Um, when people try to heal people and they do things that will hurt them, it's something that can detract me from a, a story. So seeing that the fact that she was really trying to open the wound, see what poison she could get out, put the poison in or put the uh, healing solve in the wound, recover that. Like I was very, it, I thought that was really cool. I love a good poultice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so moving on in the story, uh, next we jump to Perrin, who's asleep and dreaming. Um, he's, he, wakes up in a dream and uh, we see uh, the same dark figure kind of in the background again. Uh, it turns out he's back in his forge and uh, the wolves are there and so is Layla and it turns out the wolves are eating Layla and uh, while being eaten, she turns and looks at Perrin and says, I know. Well, of course she knows. She kind of witnessed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was the other person there, so you would think she would right. know. Yeah, there's um, not, not really much to hide when, yeah. you know, you, you see your betrothed stick an axe in your gullet, you know. I don't think that's it. I no. think it's something else. Yeah, because I noticed her eyes. They were clouded over. They had, like, a greenish look to them. And I was like, something's channeling Layla, or at least parent memory of Layla to, you know, get at him to stick at him a bit and That's you know true, they're because... using like the thing he holds like the most precious the thing that's closest to him and like just exposing and wielding all of his vulnerabilities against him his guilt his love mm-hmm. you know his pain the grief all of it and i was like that's not layla we are just using layla Right. Uh, you know, he, he he hasn't mentioned it to anybody yet. He hasn't fessed up. So it's still in there sort of roiling on him. So, Oh, you mean the voice in the back of his head? Yes, yes, yes. You know, we have our creature in the dreams, too. So at least on this show, we won't get surprised by a dream sequence ever. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really cool that, that the eyes were in the background and the flashes of light right, right at the beginning of the dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were in yeah. the window. It was, that was cool. Then he comes up a lot closer and is more prevalent in this dream than we saw with the original dream from Rand. It wasn't just a shadow yeah. figure. We got a full face with a really menacing structure with eyes and kind of a non nose. And it was a pretty terrifying creature. It was a pretty terrifying creature. Um, and that it, it pretty much uh, woke Perrin up at that point and uh, 
find out that there are still wolves. They are still howling, and uh, he and Egwene get up and run along their way. Which is weird because, like, they had a f like. Why didn't they build up the fire? Because that's a really good way to keep wolves away from you. Um, I don't think that they're thinking exactly clearly at this yeah. point. Yeah, you, you, you run away from the the scary city with no sleep, and you're still running with wolves chasing you, yeah. and possibly Trollocs with the wolves, and, and no food, no water. Yeah, that's, that's valid. Are they worried that the wolves are possibly giving their location to the Trollocs? Exactly. Yeah. You know, they don't know themselves. Um, but they do seem to find, uh, you know, they, they find something, which uh, we'll get to later. But, you know, you kind of get the feeling that sort of the wolves are maybe hurting them. That was my thought as yeah. well. And I think the reason they stayed back is they knew the next step. The wolves couldn't go as well. Right. Because there's that moment where the wolves stop and they're like, why are they stopping? And they kept going. And it's like, okay, we've brought them to this point. They're going to see the tracks. They're good. Okay, we'll go, we'll go back. We're going to hide out and watch Perrin from a distance. So I, I like in the same way that we've talked about Perrin not knowing, I also don't know that it's necessarily Perrin controlling it as much as Perrin um, like they, they sending out something and them trying to protect Perrin right. with their knowledge base. So you're getting the, getting the benefit of the pack, you know? Yeah. Like the sheep realize they're not part of the pack, but the the dogs are there to protect them. So, you know, you've got your you've got your uh, your parent shepherds. That's a good way to to think about it. I like that. Um so flashing back over to Matt and Rand now, uh Matt is complaining that they are still heading uphill. And Rand just says, "Well, then let's head downhill. Look there. There's Breen Spring. Let's go check it out." Uh, so they're walking into Breen Spring, and they see a dead man full of arrows being held in a cage just outside of town. Uh, what are we thinking about this? Oh, Matt recognizes that fancy little bauble. I would have turned around immediately. <laughs> um, so they, they continue on into town after, after seeing the not-so-welcoming welcome mat. Um, and they go to the inn and they ask uh, the innkeeper, you know, have you seen any of these people coming through town? The innkeeper says, no, I haven't seen anything like that. The only new person in town is right over there, and it's the Gleeman. At which point we are introduced to Mr. Tom Marilyn. And does anybody have any thoughts at this point? I want that coat. <laughs> yeah. I want that coat. <laughs> the song started off like Tom Waits. That was my thoughts yeah. too, Tom yeah. Waits. Tom Waits, Mishka Shubali, you know, these really growly voice. And then it kind of, when he kind of went up into the upper registers, I'm like, wait a minute, he's doing Creed. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of feel like for somebody called a Glee man, there really wasn't any Glee going on there. No, he was no. a downer. <laughs> he like, was a bummer. We got our Western <laughs> saloon. Uh, cinematography back too. Mm -hmm. yep show the yeah. boots first i also got the feeling that that song may have been chosen for a reason in that moment because everybody seemed surprised that he sang a depressing song there was that moment of silence it wasn't like oh the glee man singing another yeah. of his depressing songs mm -hmm. I think the nickname of Glee Man was accurate until that song was sung, and it took Dana breaking the frickin' ice to get things back going, because everybody's like, yeah. dude, what are you doing? You're bringing the room down. <laughs> Drinks. Get a drink. 
So speaking of that song that brought the room down, I've got the lyrics here. I'm going to read them for you because uh, I think there's some stuff that you guys might be able to find in these lyrics. Oh, yeah. It was the colors of his morning, the darkness of his night, little graves that gave no warning, the sun that brought no light. He saw his whole world breaking, that tortured soul I met, in a prison of his making, the man who can't forget. I can still hear the way that he cried for the ones he was missing. I can still hear the way that he cried for the ones he had lost. He saw them in the rivers. He felt them in the rain. In dreams, he heard them whisper the truth that is his pain. He caused the whole world's breaking, the tortured soul I met, in a prison of his making, the man who can't forget. Do we have any idea who he might be talking about here? Perrin's the first one that comes to my mind. You know, like... For me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's for Matt. And I'm like, actually, no, that is very Rand. And, like, I'm brought back to that scene when they're releasing the lamps and Rand's father is telling him, you know, this is how they can find their way back. But also, you know, we move on. You know, we can take comfort in time, you know, marching forward. And, you know, we'll get a second chance. We'll get another opportunity. And just Rand being like, okay but, you know, really unsettled by that um, and how Rand really wanted Egwene to stay and how, you know, he threw a little tantrum when, you know, he realized before she did that she was going to say yes and just kind of like he had this very specific idea of what he wanted his life to look like and Egwene not fitting into that, how he wanted her to, you know, like he's... he's not, not self-sabotaging but you know he's not you know giving life the freedom to move and you know might be you know entrapping himself in you know a place where he you know he doesn't need to be he doesn't actually need to be you know in pain and upset and you know grieving um he's kind of bringing it upon himself in a sense yeah it works for all of the characters it does yeah, my first thought was Perrin. I read it as another legend song, and it specifically says the one who broke the world. So we're talking about the dragon, the previous dragon in this to me. Mm-hmm. That was my that was my initial take. Yeah. So if it fits with all of them, that ha- that doesn't help us at all, right? We're yeah. we're no. back at square one. Uh, it can be no, no I, I, I I will tell you right now that you are absolutely correct in that the the song is about the the dragon from the previous age. This this is a story of the dragon's song. But there's parallels. Oh. One of our heroes, in a way. Yeah, it is a it, it's very well written. Uh, it, uh, you know, I appreciated that for the songwriting. That was that was great. Yeah, I, I was absolutely in love with that as well. And I'm actually uh, uh, contemplating doing a cover of it myself. So nice. Was that, was that? Oh, I think we have the same question. Was that a song in the in the books, or was it something else? Uh, no, this was written for the show. Uh, there are multiple songs song lyrics in the books themselves but we have not gotten to any of song lyrics from the books yet really not even the uh the tears for uh uh, the tears for minethrin no uh uh, like i was saying when on that episode uh that was actually a speech that maureen gave that they turned into a song Okay, Which, I thought the yeah. I thought the speech was more her explanation of everything while no no the the, the especially those lines from the song "Weep for Minethrin, Weep for for Amon's blood," 
um, were from her original speech in the book. Gotcha. And okay. they used them singing those as a song, as a lead in for her to tell the story of Manethrin. Really nice, nice way of doing things. I really enjoyed that yeah. whole sequence and the fact that yeah. they had forgotten. There's a song, everyone knows the words, nobody knows what it's about. Nobody even thinks to know what it's about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, like Ring Around the Rosie, mm-hmm. maybe? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. It's exactly. been there forever. Yeah. It's a nice playground. No, plague. Almost <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> relevant again. Okay. So uh, Tom Marilyn here, uh, our glee man, uh, with the coat that DW really, really wants. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little lore from InWorld. Uh, glee men, they're essentially uh, uh, lower class bards. Uh, they travel town to town to entertain people, usually in bars or or for festivals, things like that. They tell stories, they sing songs, they juggle. They're just kind of generic entertainers. Um, In the books, they denote themselves by having a a cloak covered in many colored patches. Um, They make a nod to that here in the show. If you look on the inside of Tom's jacket, it's covered with with many colored patches. But that is the only nod that I've seen so far to the the Gleeman outfit from the the books. And uh, that is what Tom is. travels town to town uh, telling stories and singing songs for for coins and uh, doing some sneaky things on the side as we're about to find out um so tom after his song sits down with the boys um he has them uh, buy him a drink which uh, turns out matt doesn't have the money for because somebody has stolen his purse and oh, before I, he even sat down, I saw that yeah I thought he got both of their purses. I thought he got Rand's too, because he bumped into both of them. And then when he bumped into Tom, I knew Tom got them back. Yes. But I thought he was gonna I thought he was gonna just toss them back to him. And and because Matt is kind of a dick in this situation, uh Tom decides to keep Matt's purse as as a, a little life lesson. Yeah, they, they really did uh Matt and Rand really do take turns being dicks, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the <laughs> last episode, episode, to episode. Yeah, last episode, Rand was really being a dick all over the place, and uh, he seems to be pretty, pretty down to earth so far this episode. <laughs> he had some mountain time, and that kind of did it for him. A nice walk in the mountains to clear his head. Well, I'm sure in Two Rivers, he was the guy. Like, I'm the most clever in town, and now somebody else is more clever. Oh no. I can see where uh, somebody out outdoing you at your own profession might uh, might get a, a little burr under your saddle, as it were. Yeah, that happened. That happened in the beginning when you know in the first episode when he ran into the peddler. Exactly, same kind of same situation. kind of deal. He didn't quite. Uh, he couldn't pull it over, so he he got a little a uh, little prickly on that. So moving on, next we've got uh, Perrin and Egwene. Uh, they once again there are some wolves howling. And they're pushing them forward, and uh, like DW said earlier, they come across some wagon tracks that they start following. So, uh, what what's the consensus? Do we think the wolves are are pushing them at this point, or do we think the wolves are chasing them at this point? I feel push pushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they've had chances to attack. Yeah. If if they wanted to attack, they would have attacked by now. Yeah, and nothing they've given us has really said. You know, these are your fantasy stereotypes of wolves who attack people at the drop of a pin. So uh, we, we do flash back to Matt and Rand again, um, and they're talking to Dana after uh, having their little encounter with Tom Marilyn. They say, hey, uh, we need a room for the night. Tells him to go so- chop some wood about it. 
Actually, when she told Matt to drop down and beg, I expected him to. I was actually surprised that he kind of looked at him like, no, I'm not going. Like, I, I fully like, <laughs> sure, why not? Plop. <laughs> <laughs> On that filthy, filthy floor. I have a feeling Matt slept in worse. Yeah. But when Dana said earlier, the soup is good. I knew not to trust her as soon as I saw that kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, if you notice, she was pouring the uh, the half-eaten bowls back into the communal pot, uh, yes. as, as, as well as the half-drunk the beer steins. Everything but the yeah. kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think it was the kitchen sink, actually. Probably the washing up in that soup bowl, too, or the soup pot. Yeah. <laughs> the pot is the kitchen sink. So uh, outside in the yard, we've got uh, Matt and Rand. They're starting to chop the wood, and they have they start having a, a discussion. First, they talk about Matt's taste in women. Uh, Rand says, uh, "Don't you think Dana's a little young for you? Don't you usually go for them a little more like Moraine?" Uh, thought that was an in- mm-hmm. interesting little uh, insight into their characters. Yeah, and he may be mining the same territory that his father is back in town. Oh, there's there's a thought as well yeah if you like the senior the junior looks like him and probably has more energy (laughs) (laughs) all of the style and more stamina stamina although not enough stamina to cut wood obviously (laughs) (laughs) the wisdom to choose not to (laughs) yeah so uh they kind of have an argument about whether they should keep going or whether they should go back and matt Turns into a real asshole at this point and just says, uh, Perrin and, Ed, Ed, and Egwene are probably dead. And Rand rightly calls him a prick. Yeah, I noticed that. I was like, mm, that might be a trigger. Oh, yeah. So Matt storms off, goes back inside with Dana, um, where she talks him into serving beer instead, since he's not going to chop wood. Uh, so he serves beer, beer and uh, flirts with Dana a bit. And uh, while she talks to him about wanting to just get out of Greenspring, where she's been her entire life, this, this tiny little mining town in the middle of nowhere. What are we, what are we thinking at this point? Um, so first of all, Matt's an entitled prick. Yes. Like he really, like the entire, like his entire dialogue about, you know, the work that he could or couldn't do. And back where I come from, I was a horse trader, so I don't have to do anything. Really kind of came across as, wow, you really are white, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) A little privileged. Yeah. Yeah. And then. He's pretty much come across as not very good at it right from the get-go. Yeah. Right. Overinflated sense of his own abilities. Oh, yeah. Captain Entitlement. I thought they were going that way with Rand, but, like, you know, maybe they're... And, like, as, as, as we were saying earlier, maybe they're just going to alternate. They're going to alternate. In, in a situation, yeah, exactly. right, which one is, is the most appropriate to be the, the entitled prick? Situational yeah. prickishness. There's a... I will say at this point, I was beginning to think that Dana was going to join them. At this point in the story, I'm like, oh, they're setting her up that she's going to be, she's going to show some skill that they're going to decide she needs to join the group and the the fellowship gets larger. (laughs) Or she just is like, I'm coming with you because I want to get out of this podunk town and you finally give me a reason to. Exactly. Um, one thing I really liked about that scene was was Matt claiming to be a horse trader where he came from, because as as we know from what I said in the last episode or in the first episode, um, 
in the books, Matt's father was a horse trader. He was, he was pretty much a used car salesman. So Matt making that same claim here, I thought was just a great little nod to, to how they changed it from the books. And what a great line, a horse trader without a horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does anybody need that? Does anybody here need a horse trader with no horses? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They yeah. were definitely setting her up as a likable character at this point. Very much like, so. Going back to Matt, I think he's kind of hit a reality wall at this point in the show. Mm-hmm. And the reason for his turn is it's no longer all fun and play and... Moraine's protecting us because she can or because she needs us. Now we're on our own. We probably can't go home. Our friends are gone, likely. Uh, reality kind of sucks at this point, so I guess I better just be a prick. Yeah, it's like if I have to rely on my own wits, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's confident, but he's realistic, at least, knowing his own limits. He, he knows he needs to surround himself with people who will actually get the shit done because he's not going to do it. True. Uh, so our next scene, we move on. We've got uh, back to Moraine land in, in Nynaeve, and Nynaeve is saying that the poison is bad. It's getting really bad. And Lan says, okay, you stay here. You make sure that she doesn't die. I'm, I'll be back. And he takes off on horseback, and we have no idea where he's going. Uh, any thoughts on, on where he might be going at this point? I knew that he scouted something out. I didn't know what it was, but it was clear that his return was he now has the next step in the plan. Yeah. He has he has found what he went out to find, come back to get the two of them, because he knows she's limited on time and he would have stayed out to f- till he found it. Right. Uh, so we, we jump next to Perrin and Egwene, uh, and they're still following the tracks, and they come up to a fog bank. Um, and uh, Perrin says, you stay here, I'll go in and, and see what's what's ahead, because we don't know what we're walking into here. And, and he and Egwene kind of have a little heart-to-heart. Um, he's trying to protect Egwene, Egwene's trying to tell him, no, no, you don't need to protect me, and, and, and Layla, Layla wasn't your fault, you, you need to let that go. Uh, to which, as we see, it, it uh, Perrin does not let go. No. He does confess. He says it. She just doesn't catch it. Yeah. Uh, but I noticed, and I thought, maybe he's afraid to be in close quarters with his friends in an uncertain situation at this point. Ah, uh, that's true. And that's why he he's having her he stay back is... I'm a little worried that something might happen to another one of my friends if I've got them right next to me when I've got to go into battle or something. Yeah, I go into berserker mode. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he trusts himself. I think he sees Egwene and he like superimposes Layla. So, you know, he was fighting side by side with Layla and, you know, it was good until it was horrible and Layla was gone and it was at his hands. And so he sees Egwene, he's like, I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. And the best way to do that is to remove Egwene from the equation at all. And, you know, Egwene saying, oh, well, you know, we go in together. That's, you know, that's what Layla did too. And, you know, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, he has to let Egwene like be with him the same way, you know, Layla was with him and just has to take that risk. And I think knowing he doesn't have a choice but to take that risk like only like really deepens like that guilt and that turmoil that he's in. Uh, yeah, I was just going to to add to that because I definitely think you're on the right 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 track there. But I also think 
that, as as it was mentioned, he said something, but it's said so quietly and so passively that it's easy to believe otherwise. I don't think anybody's going to believe it of him, even if he said it in a louder voice. I think his confession is going to end up being a screaming thing that he says at somebody. I don't think anybody's going to take it and believe it until he literally turns to somebody and just starts screaming at them. It was my fault. My ax hit her. Like it's going to, it's the floodgate is going to open at some point. That's my prediction. Right. Just saying it's my fault is just, that's sort of like just guilt. Yeah. That's guilt expressing itself, even though he was, he was probably, you know, trying to earnestly confess, but he didn't have the words for it. So. Yeah, I can see Egwene in that moment kind of thinking him saying, it was my fault, you know, I should have moved faster to save her from that trollic or something, not I'm the one who actually physically killed her, you know. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. Uh, that's that's Marcus Rutherford who's playing Perrin, and uh, from what I understand, when they were doing the casting process, he came in to the casting room, and there was not a dry eye in the room, and when he left the room, they were just like, that's Perrin. They, they nice. like he, so you are seeing, I think what they saw in that casting room in wow. that scene. So that, that, yeah, he, he really is, is doing a wonderful job with, with that character. Agreed. Uh, so then uh, they move into the, the fog together to go find out what they're following and they come across the Tuathuan. Um, what do we think about the Tuathuan? Irish travelers, Roma, you know, just a, a a nomadic people who are just vilified. Well, I also kind of got the vibe from this particular version of that uh, concept that they're also not one nationality, at least anymore. Right. The fact that the campfires have been open to anybody, they probably have a sampling from every town they've ever come across. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and, I, I'm wondering if the nickname the Tinkers has some uh, effect in the actual job. Is that some of the stuff they do when they go to towns and fix the pots and you know get things going? Like, is that did that name come out of that, or is it just because the Tinker job is also usually a traveling trade that people are calling them the Tinkers, even though it's not part of it? But I, I have a feeling they're all nationalities. So Tinker yeah. is like a nickname for Irish travelers because. They, as part of it, they were guys who would travel around and fix things. Yes, they, oh, they, I, they no, would, I totally so get that, like, but I'm talking about in this universe, since yeah. there's no Irish, yeah. I'm wondering if it's implied the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so, so I can give you guys some some uh, lore background on the Tuath one here. Um, they very much are based on on the uh, Irish and Scottish traveling peoples, uh, a little bit on the Roma, as as everybody pointed out already. Um, and, and yes, they do have that nickname within un- the universe tinkers for the same reason that the traveling people have picked up that nickname in that they, they go around, they fix the bottom of pots. Uh, um, you know, the, the, they do copper pot, uh, rebottoming and things like that, that the traveling people are known to do. Um, and if you notice, um, tinker is actually a considered to be a, somewhat of a slur term against the traveling people. And if you notice in this universe, it's also kind of used as a slur term because Aram doesn't come immediately out and use that term. He's saying, you know, we're the Tuathuan, we're the traveling people. And they, they still kind of look a little, you know, you've heard of us, the tinkers. And, you know, there's a little bit of a different yeah. edge on that tinker. The ones who steal your children and all but it was, that. You yeah, know? It was yeah. also amazing seeing the reaction of these people from Two Rivers who clearly haven't heard the stories. 
don't have any like reference it seems from this so they're like you know you've heard of us the boogeyman and nope i haven't <laughs> but and you kind of see that go over the the tuathman's faces of like a with these people don't have any prejudice against us which was kind of a neat moment yeah 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 it's like they don't have that fear because they haven't been exposed to the stories well, i imagine it'd be difficult to get those carts up into the mountains ranges where the two rivers area is so they probably haven't gone that far that's true so uh, a little bit more lore with the Tuathuan. Uh They follow what's known as the Way of the Leaf, which is just absolute pacifism. Um, they will not raise a hand against anybody else. They will not even defend themselves. If, if somebody is trying to kill them, they will not defend themselves. They will run away, but they will not defend themselves. So absolute pacifism. Um, they're also vegan. Um, they, they don't want to hurt any animals if they can help it, so they don't. Um, and their, their whole existence is looking for the song that that's when we first meet them. That's what they ask. Have you heard the song? And, um, almost every time somebody meets them, they say, I have not heard the song. And they say, well, then the song, we will keep looking for the song. And that is their entire existence, looking for the song, traveling from place to place, doing repair jobs when they can. And, uh, you know, they, I, I think they get the, the thieving of children kind of uh, uh, bullshit placed on their shoulders just because they're a peaceful people. And sometimes people come across them and say, you know what, I want to live this way too and join them of their own accord. And, you know, people think, oh, well, they're stealing our children. So yeah, clearly they're brainwashed. They couldn't choose to go with these people. Yeah. Right. They must have exactly. been kidnapped. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, we've got Perrin and, and Egwene. They've met up with the Tink. The, the, sorry, I should not say Tinkers. Met up with the Tuathuan, uh, where where they've been taken in and they're getting their first solid meal in days, and and they're absolutely diving in on it. Um, then we go back to uh, Dana, um, who is talking with uh, Rand, showing him where they where he and Matt can stay for the night, and uh, she kind of starts checking the waters there and, and trying to see if Rand and Matt are a couple. Yep. <laughs> that was also the point at which I started to say, wait a minute, maybe there is something up with Dana because she had been flirting with Matt first and now she's flirting with Rand and there's no particular reason why she would shift her interest. Um, so sketchy. I, I saw the, the shift of, of who she was flirting with as who's going to get me out of town. Right. Yeah. Originally, because yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't suspect what was really going on, but I was like, oh, she's, she's getting her pick. She's seeing who might be willing, and then she can play up whichever one she gets the stronger connection with so they'll get her the hell out of this town. Yeah, done with him. So so I'm wondering, uh, what do we think about this this openness towards sexuality this is not something we've seen in a whole lot of fantasy no it's great no i was i mean i was surprised well okay i wasn't necessarily surprised I was like this is 2021 so even if the original author hadn't written this into the books i'm not surprised that the screenwriters might have um just because of you know the audience these days but um in universe i I don't know if I if I expected it because you know it does seem very strongly binary in terms of gender and that usually follows that you know being hetero is the way to go 
Um, but hey, I was like, oh, okay, at least in some places in this universe, you know, gender and sexuality are fluid. And, you know, people, people don't necessarily assume that, you know, you're straight or, you know, in this universe, it, like in this one, people are like, oh, there's a way to tell, you know, that, you know, they're like that. So, hey, I was, I was, I was amused. I was enjoying that bit. And, and Rand's reaction is not the usual stereotypical reaction we get of somebody being offended and hurt. It's literally like, if I were going to go for guys, I could do better than him. (laughs) (laughs) It was so like, yeah, I see where, I see where you're going. And no, we're probably fighting like a married couple, but no, that's not what it is. It's very casual and very calm, which is, was enlightening and and happy to see. Um, Yeah. It was a nice little kind of way to introduce it and even test the waters. Cause there's a uh, very few shows out there that could just go flat out and do it and right. using innuendo and, and subtleties was a very nice and clean way to introduce it. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if anybody has been noticing um, that in this world, it seems like uh, sexuality and, and race just aren't a question. They, they, they yeah, just they don't, don't matter. They don't seem to matter. I noticed with race. Yep. That's, you know, this is the first time sexuality has really been explored that way. But with race, it's like, yeah, it's it's obvious that everybody is just sort of accepted at face value. There's no real, the first time you ever hear anything about prejudice, uh, except for like against the Aes Sedai, is against, you know, what, what the, the Tuathwan are saying about their, uh, their reputation. Yeah. In the cage. That's true. We hadn't we hadn't quite gotten there yet, but yeah. yeah. So it's it's location and faith that is what people are getting in trouble with, because those people who are either following the white cloaks or following the Aes Sedai or like, what is your, for lack of a better term, religion, or what is your hometown? And those seem to be the things that are are where the lines are drawn, rather than what is your skin color. And wh- who who do you like? like? Right. There was a slight amount of classism with uh, Nynaeve's that's mentor. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't necessarily know that that's exactly what happened because we're told it from Nynaeve's perspective, which is even secondhand, plus a person that she cared about. So that could exist as well. But I, I would imagine with the mixture of races that could possibly happen when you fracture a world as happened in the previous age it makes sense that you would see a lot of mixture now and that would become normal because it's been thousands of years yeah the the idea that uh you know humanity had reached this pinnacle and then almost everybody was dead you know you 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 don't have time to care about who's left at that point it's just you know there there are a few thousand of us left we've got to just work with what we got kind of thing yeah um, so moving on, uh, we uh, swing back over to uh, Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve. Um, Moraine kind of wakes up a little bit and mumbles a word. She says, swan. Uh, anybody have any theories what that was about? No. No, I don't have a clue. No. 
Yeah, I figured it's something that we're going to have to remember because something will happen down the road that will cause us to call back to that. Oh, that's who she was calling for. Or, oh, that's why she said that word. I have a feeling that'll show up in a previously on. On the previously on compilation. Hey, remember when this happened? Yeah, it's going to be important. The previously on had yeah. Matt calling, or Matt's mother calling him a prick. Ah, uh, yes. Right before... But see, those are some of the best previously ons when they don't just show the previous episode, but they show the things that they're hoping you remember going into this episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I always appreciate those previously ons more than just here's the last 15 minutes of the previous episode, especially if you're binging. Right. Because if you're going hours <laughs> yeah. and hours into things like I just watched that 15 minutes. I don't need to know. Oh, that's right. In episode one, that happened. I forgot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Doing, doing those extreme callback nudges. So uh, uh, Nynaeve at this point says that Maureen has just hours left to live. And Lan is like, well, I know where we're going. Let's go. And they take off again. Um, we flip back to Matt and Tom. Um, we've got Matt outside of town approaching the dead body in the cage. And Tom kind of sneaks up behind him. And uh, did anybody notice what Tom was doing with his, his sleeve there? Yeah, he was drawing a knife. Uh, it's a special kind of knife that I, I think that's what they're doing is the special kind of knife that you can keep in the crook of your elbow. And as long as you keep your elbow bent, it stays there. And then the minute you straighten your arm, the dagger falls to your hand. Yeah. And and I, I think this tells us a little bit about uh, Tom's character, or a little bit more about Tom's character when when we see this. It was when Tom became my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of figured Tom was going to be your favorite character. The drop of the knife, right? I'm like, oh. I like this guy. Oh, Liked yeah. the song before, but now I really like this guy. He he travels around from town to town. He's ready to defend himself. He's Billy Joe Shaver. I mean, he's <laughs> he's got a razor in his boot. He's he's ready for action. He'll you know, <laughs> Johnny Paycheck. He'll take your take you out because he doesn't like your hat. You know, but but calm about it, which is the nice part that I like, especially his interactions with Matt. It just really made me like. He's he's not trying to be a mentor, but recognizing somebody needs a mentor, and so. All right, I'm going to tell you this and just take this with you and then get out of my hair because I got things I got to do. And he <laughs> seems to know what Matt wants to hear at his core, too, without mm -hmm. even thinking about it. Yeah. I thought the moment that Tom decided that he liked Matt was when he heard him apologizing to the guy for taking the money. Yes, totally. The, the, the look they gave that, that moment. flick oh. over his shoulder where he wasn't expecting that and and... Well, and a great connected. moment for Matt, too. Yes. I, I thought that was a beautiful glimpse into who Matt is because you've had him be very selfish and have him be that, like, look. And I don't know how much it was even maybe spawned on by the fact that he's like, look, everybody's got their desperate moments. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, do what you need to do. I'll turn my back. And it, like knowing that, oh, I'm taking this from somebody who and the, the person looked young. Like this was not somebody who was at the end of their life. And so that moment of, I'm sorry that I'm taking this from you, but uh, yeah, I agree with you totally, Siobhan. Uh, so uh, did anybody pick up on what Tom was saying? Yeah, when he was talking about uh, giant people with red hair that people are scared of, I thought of you, dude. Uh <laughs> 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 it's like, where's the Wookiee? The... Oh, there's the Wookiee. He's in the, he's in the gym. From the, the endless wastes of Utah. <laughs> <laughs> hey now i live there too uh moving on in our story uh next we're back to rand and dana um they're still drinking kind of flirting 
And Dana's talking to Rand again about uh, wanting to leave town, uh, how, how this is a dead-end town. She's, she's getting comfortable with Rand, and she, she makes her move. And Rand kind of jumps back, because Rand is still hung up on Egwin. Egwene, sorry. I, I keep saying it like I say it, like I said it in my head when I read the books, but I need to learn the proper way. Uh, so Rand uh, uh, is thinking about Egwene and, and not thinking about Dana in this moment. And that's when Dana kind of takes a turn. Oh, yeah. I did not see it coming. I yeah. did no. not see that coming. <laughs> well, and it was spending... such a turnaround, though. Oh, well, yeah. And spending yeah. the time, like, I don't know about you all, but for me, it was going through the, okay, then what is she? What is she going to be a shapeshifter? Is she going to be like, what, what is she in league with these things that we don't know? Because we don't know enough about the Dark One yet <laughs> to know what his possible minions are. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, oh, it was interesting. Interested me. We've seen the Trollocs. But that's only two. There's there's probably way more than two options. Oh yeah, we've seen the we've seen the we've seen the the, the fades. We've seen the Trollocs. We haven't seen the cool barkeeps. Mm-hmm. Oh, the shapeshifters. <laughs> He's got a whole the, army the... of them. Yeah. Well, well, you have to think if uh, the dark ones minions are all big monstery looking things you know he's got a very limited thing amount of things that he can do with an army like that so true yeah true uh david you've got something yeah it interested me for quite a while into that scene at that the first thing she went to was her hair and that she had had it up in a bun while she was in the bar and the second that he pulled away or from her she instantly dropped it down into a braid that looks exactly like the women from two rivers. And it's like, okay, what's going on here now? This town is completely separated from two rivers. We've got a girl here who's wearing the earrings. I'm also interested in the earrings because I noticed that from the first episode that a lot of them had the earrings as well. And hers Mm -hmm. are exactly the same. The braid is exactly Mm -hmm. the same. What's going on here? Is this somebody that, has met the two rivers women and knows them or has been sent here from a different area. And before she got into her fight and all of that, I just could not stop wondering where she's from. That's a good question. I mean, (laughs) she seemed to be integrated with all the people of the town. Like she was saying, we all grew up together. We all know each other everybody seemed comfortable with her. They didn't treat her like a stranger. So it's not like she's a recent addition. Well, that's why I went with shapeshifter because I'm figuring the real Dana is like in a closet somewhere. Dead, <laughs> in half. Like that's why I went with, with, with shapeshifter. Um, but, and then the mentions of like adding a few bits of Egwene's look like, okay, this person not only duplicated, but then like added in did not see the fact that she's been dreaming of them or that she was, you know, working for him, working for the dark one. Like didn't see it. So then we, uh, we, we flash back to Matt and Tom, um, and, uh, Tom, they, they, they finished burying this, this warrior that, that was out there. And, uh, Tom says, rest warrior of the threefold land. May your soul find water at shade. What are we thinking here? He comes from a hot place, hot, dry. Yeah. So their blessings are with, about about stuff that you want when you're in the desert. Comfort. Yeah. yeah. And that that right. and that that is probably. I mean, the the two options that I see here is 
is that where the um, person they buried is from, or is that where uh, Tom is from? Because Tom, being a traveler with stories and stuff like that, may know blessings from many lands. Mm -hmm. So is he giving the blessing that that particular body would get by respect, or is he pulling from his own lineage and pull, like using a phrase from his people? That's what, I didn't know yes. that. But I, he finally got to jump like on somebody. Reasonable options, definitely, definitely, both are plausible. And then uh, Matt's, you know, got back to being kind of cheeky now, and he says, "Oh well, now since we're friends, can I get my purse back?" And, and <laughs> Tom actually obliges him. And then we learn that uh, Matt has some thieving skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, yes, but I want to point out earlier. You uh, somebody was saying that uh, uh, Tom seemed to know exactly what to say to Matt when. Um, so, do we think that maybe Tom let Matt get that well, one over on him? I think so. Definitely, Definitely. seems very likely. Yeah, yeah. It's like. We may never find out because Tom does not strike me as the type who would let know that he let it happen. He oh, wants right. that person because that old that would sap Matt's confidence. It yeah. needs to be that Matt knows he or thinks he got the better of him. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can think that. I'm fine with that. If it's going to help you be a good person, yeah, be the right, right. person, be the be the person that this world needs. Kind but of I could see that being a bit of a recurring, like a recurring theme. In as their relationship develops, so that as the audience, he go, oh yeah, so he is clearly doing this, but in no individual occasion does it, you know, is it is it evident uh, to our somewhat more egotistical Matt? Oh, I see what you mean. When, yeah. Originally, when you said that, I thought you meant that they were just going to continue over the course of the series stealing that same perspective. That's an interesting idea. I would laugh at that. But no, I think your idea is even more rich. But <laughs> So uh, moving on with our story, we go back to uh, Rand and Dana, who has who now gone full kind of serial killer on Rand. Um, and she says, uh, we're just going to wait here for Matt. You're not getting out of here. That door is made out of ironwood. It would take three men your size to break it down. And Rand says, oh, yeah. Watch me. I had an idea on Rand's strength from the wood shopping. Even she was looking at the fact that he was yeah. clean courting a, a block of wood with one shop. Like, this is more than just, oh, this is what he does on the farm. This is a guy who's like got some power behind him. Yeah, a little Whether or not that's magically uh, based or otherwise. I think I it's know. channeling. You kind yeah. of need, you get We're some music out. there. Just had that thought, like, wait a minute, what if it's all five of them? Yeah. They need yeah. to like, it's We're like figuring it's out everybody's superpowers and parents right. got the wolves, Rand's obviously got the physical strength. I'm kind of wondering if it's gonna turn out that they are all part of the dragon and it'll be kind of like a Voltron thing at the end. <laughs> <laughs> dragon form. And naive yes. will form the head. That's why she's the wisdom. <laughs> form blazing sword with a heron on it. Well, the five, the five weren't really mentioned before, uh, before Dana really. Right. Really mentioned it. I was like, oh, wait, she knows. She knows more than. Well, more than Rand's letting on, but... And, uh, and, and we're getting right to that. Uh, Rand, after he smashes through that door, just runs almost straight into Matt and, and says, you know, we got to run. And Matt 
knowing Rand and and that friendship going again, he immediately says, "Oh, you're running. I'm running too. Let's let's right. go." <laughs> um, we can argue later. Let's just get the hang of it. Yeah. Um, so they're running through town and uh, Dana, knowing her way around town, cuts them off at the pass and uh, starts giving them a, a little bit of a monologue about her motivations. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on her monologue here. I thought it was yeah. an entirely coherent philosophical position. I thought it was great. Right. Like the argument that <laughs> the world is shit, life is shit, and then you die and then you come back to life and have another shit life. And then you die yeah. and come back and have another shit life. And how is that not hell? And since it's hell, we need to end it. And we have a God who wants to end it and get and let us get off the wheel and just go to an eternal end and everything's over and done. Thank you very much. And plus, I get remembered in the process. Where, you know, Rand is like, I don't really like this, but I'm going to accept it. I was thinking, like, there's got to be at least one person out there who's like actually this is an exist like existential threat to me like this takes away my agency as a person you know this is i don't like the fact that there's second chances and new opportunities or like why can't i just have this one be how i want it to be and you know wants to do whatever it takes to you know make it so and then you know, here comes Dana. And then my other thought of that, like, I was like, okay, so we're talking about you can have security, but it's, you know, you have this authoritarian streak, or you can have the freedom with an element of chaos. And then I was like, there's, there, I have a lot of Marvel, like Marvel Cinematic Universe feelings about this. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I was like, okay. She would dig Thanos. Dana would dig hey, Thanos. Yeah. Hey, I was like, okay, well, you know, Team Iron Man versus Team Cat. That's where I immediately went back to, actually. But um, or Winter Soldier, like going even farther back. But um, yeah, that's it's like okay, if we're talking about security, what will you? What are you willing to trade for that? And Dana's like, I'm willing for the Dark One to do what the Dark One does, if in exchange, like things are stable and I can I know what's coming there's also like it reminded me there's a sept of satanism that actually believes that satan is the good guy because god created the heavens and the earth all the physical and since spiritual is good physical is bad god created physical therefore god is bad satan must have created the spiritual so satan is good like they've they've logiced that out to be what that that's what they believe so it reminded me a lot of that like this is shit so dragon and uh, i said i doing all of this is just going to bring more shit so therefore the person they call the dark one must actually be the good guy and i'm going to help him dark friends is the the name that they that they give him which you know that's uh that that that's a, that's an interesting way to do it not minions of the dark one but dark friends <laughs> you know, they're very, very nice, the, happy people. They have cookies. They're on yeah. dark Facebook together. Well, then that makes <laughs> I was like, okay, so where does the white cloak comes into this? Like, is it a three-way standoff? Are the cloaks like, are they agents of the dark one, sort of, kind of? Like, because they clearly have beef with that. With could, could there maybe be more than just white and black, and possibly some shades of gray mm -hmm. in between, or shades of color? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this, this, uh, um, 
monologue that that Dana goes off on right there, I really just it just sounds to me like nihilism, just straight up nihilism. Just everything sucks, so let's end the universe and piss on this guy's rug. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> say what you will about national socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> it ties the room together. <laughs> Uh, so right after she gets done with her, 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 uh, little speech, uh, a dagger blooms out of her throat and she falls over dead. And we see Tom stepping out of the shadows behind her. And Tom is just like, uh, yeah, I heard that she's crazy. There's a fade coming and, uh, I'm heading East. Are you guys coming? I was like, East, do you say? He has some serious dart throwing skills there. That's not only on target, but through the throat, I'm impressed. That's when I tr- started trusting Tom. Well, if you remember earlier when we, when we saw Tom uh, go out uh, uh, and meet Matt next to the, the dead body, and we saw Tom pull, pull his dagger down into his hand, and Matt pull his dagger out, and you know, Tom said, uh, you'd bleed out before he even got near me. I think, I think we know that he was absolutely telling the truth at that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That wasn't just a <laughs> dagger. That was a throwing dagger. Yeah. Well, and the fact that he never raised his dagger. When Matt has his dagger out and is pointing it at him, he still has his arm at his side, which is where you would want to keep it to have the full throwing action. Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't know that he knows that he has it. He doesn't want to, like, okay, do what you need to do. And when he walks up to to let him down, that's the first time he actually uses the dagger that's been in his hand the whole time. I thought that was smooth. And if you're really skilled, you can actually throw it from your hip and release underhand and mm-hmm. get it out faster. So Rand and Matt leave town with with uh, with Tom. Um, they're going off on their adventure now. We switch back over mm-hmm. to uh, Moraine Land and Nynaeve, and uh, there they run into some other Aes Sedai. We see uh, somebody in yeah. green up on a cliff, and then we see uh, Leandrin, who we've met in the past, uh, in red, come out and meet them. Oh, I didn't catch mm-hmm. the, the one on the hill. The green one on the hill. I hear about where you watch. There's um, one on both and... sides. Yeah, didn't catch mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, Leandrin informs them that they have caught someone who's claiming to be the Dragon Reborn. And we see this someone, and what do we think? Who the Didn't... hell is this guy? Yeah, they're not the person from the first episode. <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> I noticed Leandrin doesn't seem to like Moraine very much. I noticed. I was like, Moraine might be no. the odd one out. I caught this. I was like, Moraine's a little awkward. And then I realized she's alone. And, you know, her warder said, you know, that's why they tend to travel in groups. And I was like, but Moraine's not in a group. So has Moraine been bullied? Is she exiled? Did she do something wrong? I was like, I don't know, but like, this is very like high school. And <laughs> I want to know what's going I want to know what's going on. <laughs> Leander does have that mean girl vibe. Oh, yeah. definitely. Definitely. She's a Heather, no doubt. Uh, so, so this person that's in the cage, uh, any thoughts on that person? And uh, I mean, I, Did- I just saw the, the face and, and the smoldering just stare did anybody get the vibe that lan kind of maybe recognized something about this person a little bit that's what i picked up on is that lan had some recognition moment i don't think knew that person but there was something about the dress or something that that lan picked up on there had to have been something important there because it's like they end the episode on that Usually the viewers are supposed to have that 
<gasps> moment and maybe we were supposed to see something but i didn't see this much was more of a it was more of a huh well, maybe it's something that the people who read the book pick up on. And like, because that's, I have no problem with that. If you want to do a little teaser for the people who've read the books and then the other people will find out as we go, that'd be cool. I, I, I can I can tell you right now that the fan service has been constant throughout this whole thing. <laughs> I, there, there are so many tiny little details that if I got into explaining to you guys where they came from or what they meant or where they were from that, you know, these podcasts, would take five hours each I'm, I'm saving up all of that information to use in the off season to d d discuss the shows some more but yeah the the fan service is there and and so yeah the that that alone was not fan service there is so much more fan service going on gotcha but was that part of the fan service I mean, I would say the entire show at this point is part of the fan service. Uh, well, you know, he's, he's not going to tell a lie, but he's not going to tell us the truth we want to hear. <laughs> ah, Ruark has taken the oaths. <laughs> I mean, the, the, clearly the character must have some significance because he wasn't killed. Right. Right. So he's not just some like crazy, um, ma you know, magic channeling dude. Um they see him do, as Do dangerous. we know that the, the person in the first episode was killed? That's true. No. We don't. It was just implied. I inferred we, it. We had a cutaway and we heard him screaming, but... The other thing I wonder is if Moraine is the only one who can actually tell who it is. Because she was a, in the on top of the cliff observing the other one being chased. And now they're seemingly bringing this one to her and saying, hey, we've caught another one that claims to be... Mm. Is she the only one that has the ability in the Aes Sedai to actually determine that? That's an interesting uh, thought. And if there is a uh, relationship between the guy in the cage and Lan, how well, would he, what would he communicate to her if it's like, okay, this is, this is somebody I grew up with. Uh, this is somebody in my family. Uh, uh, maybe try not to have him beheaded or <laughs> the other thing, whatever would happen from a storytelling standpoint um also in the same way that we had the end of episode two you see Nynaeve with the blade and then it begins with Nynaeve's release so you, mm -hmm. you give a plot point and then you begin the series with explaining why that plot point is there we may have gotten such a close-up view of that character so that we recognize them in the pre-information that we're going to get at the beginning of the next episode Ah, yeah. By seeing that person so clearly, when you see them walk on and they're a really nice guy, and you're like, oh my God, that's the person from the cage. Like that, it, they can build that for you. So that may be why they did it with no like ability to recognize who it is or why that's significant now is just yeah. to seed that face in your head. Yeah, that's something that, that you know, that, that has been, uh, that that's been kind of prominent in a lot of series TV lately. Like I noticed, uh, I looked up, uh, Wayne Yip, uh, the director of this episode, I had recognized the name and went back and where have I seen it before? I'm also in the process of rewatching Preacher. That's another show that did that same kind of thing. And Wayne Yip directed a couple of uh, episodes of Preacher as well. So yeah, that's, you, you've got something there, you know, it'll, it'll come back and you'll see this person in a whole different light and wonder how he got into that cage. Maybe that'll be answered. And that brings us to the end of the episode. So uh, before we wrap up, any any final thoughts uh, you have on the episode? Any anything? Any predictions for the future? 
I have zero predictions of the future. This one is, <laughs> I, I can't, I'm not familiar enough with the tropes to sort of guess what could be coming if that's something you're going to play into. But there have been enough twists so far, from what I can tell from any of the, any of the, the typical fantasy tropes that uh, it's, it's, all, it's all wide open right now. Well, especially now that they've seeded the Dark Friends. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like Battlestar Galactica, who's a Cylon. You don't know who's a dark friend. There you go. And yeah. it's going to keep going forward. You will never know who is a dark friend. And it makes the trusting anybody, no matter how nice they seem, very difficult. The Cylons, the Skrulls, the dark friends. Yep. I'm really hoping that the four find each other. Um, the five? They're so... The five, yes. I'm really <laughs> hoping that the five find each other. They seem so lost when they're separated. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that, that maybe another two episodes before they, they bring them back together. Like, I think they were separated too early for it to be really long. Okay. Interesting thoughts there from everybody. Um, I think we will wrap it up right there. Um, Just let you know to join us next episode. We're going to be discussing uh, episode four of the series titled The Dragon Reborn. Uh, Special thanks, as always, to Michael and Jen from Watch Party, who make all of this possible. Thank you so much, Michael and Jen. Yes, thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Michael and Jen. And obviously gargantuan thanks to our audio editor, Jordan Rennells. He makes us sound way better than we actually do. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Jordan. Man with the magic. This has been a production of Watch Party Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Final word from our guests. You're part of the Voltron that makes the Dragon Reborn. Which part do you form? I'm left foot. I just, I don't know why. I just feel left footish. Can't fight without a knee. I'll go right arm, but I think it's ambidextrous. I'm the vocal cords. I am definitely the face. (laughs) (laughs) All our posters are going to have some Mario on them. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all.